Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. Hello and welcome to Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. My name is Andy and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Rick, who is going to be the everyman who will ask everyman questions about moons. And this episode we are going to cover such stories like the rusty moon, Russia going back to the moon, quirky data gathered during a eclipse on Mars when Phobos went across the sun, petrol drinking aliens could be living on the moons of Saturn, genuine headline, some surprise news, which I'm going to splice in later on, but I want Rick's genuine initial reaction to it when I first tell him. And of course, we're going to have full moon of the month and finishing on and the next moon is, which this episode is going to be Ganymede. So, Rick, how are you and how is your quarantine? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm good. Still alive, which is uh, doing well at the moment. In fact, yeah, I was, a, I was a bit down the other day and my wife said to me, you're right. And I said, oh, I just feel... Feel as I'm treading water at the moment. After a sort of few minutes conversation, we actually agreed was probably doing quite well given all, all the chaos um, that's going on in the world. So uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm sort of just going to work, coming back. That's it. My my days are exactly the same because I'm going to work, coming back, doing cloud revision uh, in terms of computer clouds, not bloody cumulonimbuses. <laughs> uh, so. Because when I was job hunting, everyone wanted sort of a cloud qualification. I was like, oh, well, I can do cloud. It's, yeah, but you're not qualified. You don't have a tick in the box. So um, uh, for those of you who don't know, there are like three cloud technologies like Amazon, Microsoft and Google. And each one of them has about eight exams that I want to do. And I've got none, so you've just got to work your way up each one. And so I've, I've worked out it'll take the best part of nine months if, if I do nothing else, <laughs> but just revise when I get home. What? So, that's it, yeah. <sighs> they're just Well, that's it. My, my contract's up in March, so I need to be ready, apply for new jobs in January. So I've kind of got to get as much in as I can. So uh, I passed an exam, though, Andy. Oh, congratulations. Do you now know which one is a rainy cloud and which cloud has a silver lining? And <laughs> that, Yeah, no, I did the Microsoft Azure Fundamentals, which is like, uh, it's billed as the, the qualification, it's like the entry-level qualification for Microsoft's cloud. And um, it involved going to a test centre at eight in the morning because there was no other places booked. So, or bookable, yeah. with loads of teenagers who are doing their driving test, um, <laughs> dri driving test theory exam. Um, so, uh, but I, I would say, you know, uh, thank you to all the people in the test centre who showed due reverence for this 40-year-old man-ish turning up to do a Microsoft exam. So, so it was, oh, you're Microsoft, oh, right, uh, a proper person. None of these spotty teenagers. <laughs> uh, if I had to sit a theory exam today, I don't think I'd be able to pass it. And I'd put it to you that I don't think you would be able to pass it either because the curriculum has changed a lot since you and I have sat our theory exams. Yeah, you don't need a rare man with a red flag in front of the car anymore. <laughs> well, it, um, it's like maths exams. If you got me to sit a maths exam, I probably would be able to get most of it. But... They're just teaching new things and new methodologies. So I might end up with the answer, but I would lose out for not showing the correct working out. Or it would be like non-curricular working out. Yeah. Oh, as long as you get the, the correct answer, I'm sure they'll give you something. But yeah, I mean, maths, 
to be fair, hasn't changed in 2,000 years, if not longer, and will not change its maths. Whereas the road system kind of does. Yes, that's a, that's a fair <laughs> point. <laughs> two plus two will pretty much always equal yeah. four. It's just like you got your driving uh, hazard awareness test. It's like, oh, hang on, there's a, a, a Roman legion heading towards us. What, <laughs> beep your horn? I don't know. <laughs> They're in turtle formation, which means you must <laughs> go at which speed? Yeah, what's the stopping distance of a, a Roman formation? <laughs> uh, I'd, I'll, I'd I'll, say I'll, two metres, because when the f- person at the front stops, then you have like a backup of people bumping into them going like, sorry, 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 or the Latin equivalent of sorry. Yeah, unless they're on ice, and then there's a bit more stopping distance. Just... <laughs> Because, yeah, as I remember from the theory, driving theory exam, there was a lot of what's the stopping distance of this tonnage of truck on this weather condition. It was just this sort of big table of... I didn't have to do that. You know, back in in my day, it was, yeah, just a big... Basically, it was a glorified, do you understand that when it's wet, your car will take longer to stop? That's broadly... Oh, and don't beep your horn if you see a horse. Beyond that, you didn't really need to know much okay. <laughs> back in my day. That wasn't taught to me about don't beep your horn at a horse. And Really? Yeah, it was, it was mostly that... tyre maintenance. Like, when are your tyres worn out? Oh, right. Which I think is a, a valid uh, skill. That's a good thing to know. Is it when you put a coin in them? Or something. It was like two millimeters or four millimeters or something. Uh, the coin one is a good, uh, good measure, but I wasn't told that. It was a case of modern tires have levels of wear on them, and when this particular tread is worn off, you won't be able oh, to the... see this much spacing, and when you can't see that much spacing, you need new tires. Oh, is it like the yellow lines start appearing? On your tyres. Uh, it doesn't go as far uh, as yellow lines. It's a case of uh, they, they make tyres with like ridiculously shallow grooves that are probably like one or two millimetres. But once that has worn off, because they're very visible to begin with when they're brand new, so you know what they look mm. like. And then when they're worn off, you know to get new tyres. Oh, right. Because there's these yellow lines that appear. Like if you keep wearing down your tyres, there's these yellow lines that uh, just appear on your tyres and they're just a flag to the police saying, <laughs> this this tyre is gone. Also known as hubcaps. Oh. Yeah, pull pull me over. I'm well beyond the legal limit. Oh, my car is very much due a service. But anyway, we're not here to talk about cars. We're here to talk about moons. So shall we jump straight into some moon-related news? Uh, yes, please. So speaking of maintenance, the moon has gone rusty. Has it now? Yes. It, it didn't look like that the other night. What did it look well, like the other night? Uh, the moon, just white. <laughs> That said, there have been some wonderful like shots of the moon on the horizon where it's like glowing red or looking very orange just, and that's due to light pollution in the streets and whatnot in the atmosphere, all sorts of things. But it looked uh, it looks way bigger at the moment, even though we're coming into a micro moon. So it just goes to show you the a magnification effect that the atmosphere has on the moon. Uh, but yes, the moon is going rusty. And this is based on data that has been returned from Chandrian 1. Uh, which one was Chandrian 1? Is that in the Indian one? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Chandrian 2 had the landers and rovers Pragram and Vikram, but unfortunately it crashed. But the orbiter is still around the moon, as is Chandrian 1. And this... Uh, has been mapping the surface, taking this thing called spectral data, basically beaming down radio waves to the, the surface 
and looking at the spectral pattern of what bounces back and measuring the elementary makeup, the chemical composition, the stuff that is on the surface. And when it was over the poles, they found that there was a lot of hematite, which is a particular type of iron molecule. Molecule is the, thing, is the right word. Basically, iron oxide, which is rust. It has the formula Fe2O3, and it's rusty, rusty iron. And they found lots of hematite. Now, for rust, you need two things, oxygen and water. Two things that the moon doesn't have. Where, <laughs> where is this rust? <laughs> Not to correct you, oh moon expert, but there's yeah, there's many things the moon doesn't have. <laughs> um, okay, two of many things that the moon doesn't have: monkeys, bowling alleys, <laughs> trebuchets, you name it. Eat out to help out schemes. It's yeah. devoid of a lot of things, but it is rusty at specifically the poles. Now this kind of makes sense because there is water at the poles, but it is frozen and just because you've got a bunch of frozen water doesn't mean that water is getting out and going into the iron ores and the iron that is near the poles so one you need water to get into the iron in order to make it rusty but you also need an oxidizer you need free oxygen and the moon doesn't have oxygen it might do in very very trace amounts in the soil but not enough to make the amount of hematite that is on the moon sorry quick so if i look at the poles of the moon are they red like i'm, I'm thinking of rusty it's rust or is it there's a bit of rust okay so when you say like looking at the poles and it's red do you mean like looking at mars yeah okay because mars has a lot of hematite and that's a relic of when it had a lot of water. That makes sense that Mars is rusty because it had a lot of water, quite a bit of oxygen, but that's no longer the case now. Now, the moon has hematite on it, but not enough to give it a reddish hue, a reddish light glow. It's just been detected there. And people have theorized for a while that, okay, if we have all these metals on the moon, then are they gonna change? Are they gonna get oxidized? Are they gonna evolve over time? And it turns out they are. And it's due to these precise measurements that they have actually managed to detect rust on the moon. It's getting oxygen from somewhere, and it's getting oxygen from us, from Earth. Uh, how's it doing that? Is it just nipping down at night and stealing our oxygen? It's kind of stealing our oxygen. I knew it. Blo <laughs> bloody moon. Why does it only ever come out at night, you know? What's it up to? So... The atmosphere is extending all the way out to the near side of the moon, the, the side that's facing us all the time, uh, on something that's called a magnetotail, which sounds like a Pokemon. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say, or an X-Man or something. Yeah, yeah uh, magnetotail. It's, it's the next uh, electrical type. No, you give like nine tails a lightning stone so it evolves into an electric type that's a niche joke that you might not get if you haven't played pokemon but anyway i'll get i'll get half the joke there okay trace amounts of oxygen are donated by the earth's atmosphere that's the uh word they're using so stolen stolen <laughs> so it's actually managing to get to the moon via the earth's magnetic field on a magneto tail Earth's magnetic field is stretching out far enough, and I'm talking like really faint, but just enough to get to the surface of the moon and deposit oxygen there enough to actually oxidise. Yeah, uh, sorry, this is news to me, as is most of the podcast, to be honest, because I kind of think, you know, you get a lot of 
oxygen at ground level and then as you go up into a balloon you will basically die of oxygen deficiency i don't know a mile or two high yeah but the the moon is like hundreds of miles away so yes there's there's less oxygen the higher up you go but that doesn't mean there isn't oxygen there that just isn't enough oxygen for humans to breathe there is stuff there it's just thinner and oxygen will have like a charge to it and because the magnetic field will carry things with <laughs> charge sorry that that's a magnetic charge um Yes. Not like a price charge. <laughs> if I'm in the middle of space, I need oxygen. It's, yeah, four quid. Yeah. Oh, God. God. First the bridge to Cardiff and now this. Yeah, that's it. It's like someone is going to be pretty mercenary if they're charging for ox- oxygen in space. Yeah, your esophagus doesn't have a toll booth. Yeah. But it has a electrical charge which can be carried on magnetic fields. And it doesn't have to be like the millions, if not billions of particles that we breathe in in a single mouthful, it can just be a couple of dozen that are on one particular wave of this magnetic field. It just has to get to the surface of the moon, which it manages to do. And here's an, like a wonderful little bit of extra working that they managed to do. So the sun is kicking out all of this solar wind and it's kicking out charged particles, but in the opposite manner. So it's kicking out a bunch of hydrogen which is known as a reducer so in order to make uh, rust you need to add oxygen to your iron and this is called an oxidizer hence oxidization leads to rust but if you add a reducer and by reducer i mean a molecule that donates electron to other molecules and atoms so it will donate uh, electrons to the iron as opposed to oxygen, which is an oxidizer, and that will take them away, which causes it to bond and oxidize and make the rust. Whereas hydrogen will donate them and kind of like throw the thing off balance. So Earth has a atmosphere and this magnetic field which protects us from the solar wind, whereas the moon doesn't have that. So the moon is exposed to solar wind all the time, but it's got this little stream of oxygen coming from Earth depositing oxygen on it and it gets a chance to actually make the rust combine the iron and the oxygen together through eclipses because when the earth blocks the moon it blocks almost all of the solar wind and gives it enough time for it to form some rust even though it's just like 10 minutes it gives it enough time to actually (laughs) form some rust and this is going to happen time and time again over enough time millions if not billions of years rust will form but there's another thing that rust needs so you got iron you got oxygen do you know what else you need uh love <laughs> you need one more thing paul mccartney and that is yeah. water now i said uh there's rust at the poles and the poles have permafrost in the craters Frost is water, just in ice form, not liquid form. But rust has been detected outside of these craters, which means that water has to be coming from somewhere. And I actually know where it's coming from. And I felt very smug reading this article because it's in my lunar gardening video where the moon is bombarded by tiny, tiny little particles known as micrometeorites that penetrate the soil up to about 30 centimeters to half a meter. And that is enough to spray out some 
water particles doesn't i'm not talking about like throwing a massive brick into a pond levels of water just water molecules but enough to combine with the oxygen and the iron to make rust that's pretty good did you did you point it out to them say i've i've done a video no, I didn't. I kept it for this podcast because I wanted to feel a little bit special. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's good. Well, you should let them know. Bear in mind that yeah, the the podcast is uh, based on other people's work mainly. Yeah, well, that Your, that is true. I, I don't think you've actually done any sort of uh, original moon research with Hubble space telescopes and so on. You're ge- yeah, generally drinking and writing, doing videos. Hey. <laughs> But accurate, yes. Yeah. That is a point, actually. For the next video, someone has very, very kindly given me the tools I need to actually do some honest-to-God moon spotting of my own. Oh, cool. <laughs> Sorry. Is it just a pair of eyes? Because you can gen- generally spot the moon. <laughs> no dickhead. It's, um... <laughs> it's... Sorry, let me, re- let me rephrase that. Also, is it like train spotting where you rec- you know trains? It's like okay, oh, there's the four seven one two three. You know, you have a logbook of all the trains you've seen and you try and get them all. I'm guessing moon spotting from Earth is pretty easy, just with the naked eye. It's like, oh, there's the moon. That's my logbook done. Thanks. I'm okay. off. Okay, not terrestrial moon, not lunar. I'm talking oh. about like other moons of Saturn and Jupiter. So it was a case of how to get in contact with the observatories that took the photos of these moons that led to their initial discovery, how to pinpoint the exact point in an image, because these images are like a gigabyte and they are huge. So it's like this pixel along the x-axis and this pixel along the y-axis, and then you overlay two or three of these images and you should see something move against the backdrop of the stars. And it's that kind of moon spotting, so it'll be lots of image processing. But what I'm hoping to do for the next video after the one I'm currently making is to go through these uh, photos that have been taken and pull out footage of a moon that hasn't been seen by the public yet. So it's been seen by scientists and uh, astronomers and the people who made the discovery, but it has been, hasn't been publicly made available yet. So that's what I want to do in the next video, with the permission of everyone involved. Of course, I don't want to be like, ha ha, gotcha. I want to yeah. actually give credit where credit is due, but also talk about the process of how you can do this. That sounds good. Well, how come the scientists haven't shown people the moon? Um, I honestly don't know. I, I think it's a bit frustrating if you're like, hey, we... We discovered this thing. Okay, cool. Can I see it? We'll read the paper. Uh, okay. And I'm sure the, the final image is just going to be a bunch of stars that are blurry and a blurry spot going blub, 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 diagonally across the screen. So that's not very exciting, but it's still a tangible visual. Whereas reading a bunch of coordinates and a bunch of orbital data on a paper can be a bit dry and uh, I, I take your word for it. I, I, I'm assuming yeah. this is correct. They, they should have a word with their communications department, I think, because they usually c- convert things into 
press speak. Uh, presumably like our petrol drinking aliens we've got later on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's that sounds really good. Um, and it sounds like definite GIF material. So uh, if yes, you, once exactly. you've got your little animation, make a GIF and then stick it on Wikipedia. And uh, that's you created into legend for eternity. I would have thought actually being able to name some moons would have done that. But yes, you're correct. Actually providing a GIF to Wikipedia, which is what the guy who gave me the tools to do this research is actually doing. He's making GIFs to add to Wikipedia. I'm just going to pick one that he hasn't done yet and go through the process myself to be able to understand it a little better to try and help other people do it. Because if other people can do this as well, then one, it makes my life easier because it's publicly available data and I can resource it and credit them with their permission, of course. Uh, but it's also a wider breadth of knowledge, hopefully getting more people into this kind of moon hunting. Yeah, no, that sounds good. I'm interested in that. Let us know if you need me computer skills and I'll, uh, I'll boot up the old uh, differential engine. Brilliant. Uh, I may call on your skills come October. Oh, in fact, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Just on that, is that why you were asking me how to decrypt a certain random format from something, or was that? No, that was for di that was a different thing. That was for me going through old Voyager images of at the time. I believe it was Voyager images of Atlas. But I ha I recently taught myself how to do it for this latest moon video I'm making, which is on Miranda, which is a Uranian moon. Uh, that was it. Sorry for the listeners. I got a random thing from Andy saying, you got computer science degree. How do I, what's this file format? And it was, yeah, something from the 1970s, sort of before computers had, <laughs> before anyone was sort of expecting anyone else to use their files. Yeah. And the file format is .img for .image. And then that was fine. But now you expect something called .image. Anything should be able to run that. No, this is like ridiculously layered. You need a bespoke thing that was made in Linux and it's not intuitive, not user-friendly. It's, uh, it's a bit of a nightmare to use. I had to actually uh, learn how to automate something, uh, like a bit of automation code in order to batch process the images and convert them from one format to another because otherwise I'd have been there for hours. Cool, the things you do for the moons, eh? I know, I know, and they don't even thank me. So, in summary, the moon is getting rusty, and it's all our fault, because Earth is donating oxygen, which is a key part of turning iron, which is already on the moon, into rust. And while the water is already there and being dug up through micrometeorite impacts, we're the ones who are actually providing the oxygen. So we're the enablers in this rusty, rusty problem. I don't, I don't even think it's a problem, though, technically, because, like, yeah, if you've got a bike, there's a utility. So when, when the rust goes through the bike, you lose the utility. But I'm guessing the moon's utility is just to be in orbit, which, if it rusts, it will just rust onto itself. If you're taking up oxygen and you're taking up water on the moon, that's stuff that is going to be harder to separate out of rust than it is out of its pure format. Oh, are you thinking when we land on the moon? Yeah. I, like, I'm talking about, like, f I don't know, 12 atoms out of every million or something like that. <laughs> but it's still taking up a resource that could be used. As we exploit all the other resources on the moon. Yeah, why not? I, I like the idea that we can overcome all the ma massive distances and the incredibly hostile environment and all these problems we solve, but, oh, it's a bit rusty? Oh, it's a bit rustier than we thought. Mm. Neil, did okay. you get a tetanus shot? No. Oh, yeah. I can't go out. <laughs>
So, speaking of going to the moon and exploiting its resources, do you know who's going there next? Uh, well, now I know the uh, moon is turning red, I'm guessing it's a traditionally red country. Aha! So... <laughs> nicely done. Uh, yes, Russia is planning on going to the moon. That actually ties in nicely to a video I made um, about Oberon, which is known as the reddest of the major Iranian moons. And I, for some reason, when I was researching this moon and that came up, I just thought reddest. And it just immediately thought communist. And so I made all the moons of Uranus communist to varying degrees. <laughs> and so I had my uh, mate who's really into history, specifically Russian history. And we spent a good hour arguing over which country that's communist would be the reddest. And we eventually landed on North Korea being the reddest of the communist countries but it, there was a lot of debate over is it cuba is it is it russia um venezuela you, yeah could venezuela be is that more communist than cuba and so we were arguing about this for absolutely ages uh but the final order which i'll post an image of now on the youtube thing is the order we went in cool yeah uh that's basically a trip to the pub with andy <laughs> That's what it ends up being. What? Some sort of surreal. That, that's <laughs> yeah. because of the improv training and just constant yeah. yes-anding that you taught me, so you're responsible for this. Yes, and I regret <laughs> it. Uh, anyway, Russia is going back to the moon. It is planning to put a lunar lander called Luna 25 on the moon, launching October 2021. That is a wonderful time because America said it would get to the moon in 2024. So they're going to annoy America by continuing their space program from the 1970s. In fact, that's why it's called Luna 25, because the last mission to the moon from Russia or the Soviet Union, as it was then, was in the mid 70s and was Luna 24. Yeah, but America's going there to land on it, aren't they? A boots-on-the-ground mission. Well, they say it's going to be more than a boots-on-the-ground mission, but considering they're delaying Gateway, they are cutting back on a lot of things. And this is all depending if Trump gets another term, which, oh, God knows what's going to happen. Uh, nothing is predictable anymore. It's in the pipeline to get uh, Americans to the moon in 2024. However, that will probably be delayed. Whereas when Russia says it's going to do something, it's going to do something. <laughs> so they will land something on the moon on October. Well, they're going to launch something on October 21. I think it's going to get there early 2022, maybe. Yeah, but it's not a manned mission, though. No, it's just a lander. Oh. But it's basically, the point of this mission is to prove they can do it, to make sure they're still capable of doing it and doing it with the current technology they have. Because the last time they did this was in the 1970s. So imagine getting a computer from the 70s <laughs> yeah. and trying to do some a modern thing on it now. Like, okay, 70s computer, can you uh, run Word? So you want to make sure that you're still capable of doing the same thing. I was thinking about this yesterday, actually, because I was downloading uh, 40 gigabytes worth of files for some reason. And my first computer in the 90s had 
400 megabytes in total. Um, another thing is I've got a game at the moment that needs 400 megabytes of RAM. And I was thinking that that is the entire hard disk of uh, what I used to have. The, uh, the first game I ever got was on floppy disk and it was ski-free and it fit on a floppy disk, which was 1.49 megabytes. Oh, cool. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. Floppy disk. Uh, I could get Ski Free on my phone now, and it's a delight to play. Although you can't jump on it, which is uh, a big flaw. Uh, (laughs) You're not as free as you used to be. I'm better. (laughs) He can still get eaten by the Yeti, though. That's good. I'm guessing, though, that if if you pay, like, an extra three quid, you can get Jump. (laughs) And if you pay an extra four quid, you get a different colour scarf or something. Uh, It doesn't have in-game transactions, the, wow. the the about section of it said, this is a labour of love, I love the game, I was frustrated I couldn't play it, so I decided to make an app for it and let you all play it. Which is quite sweet. Well done, that person. Yeah, well done, that person. So this is actually, I'm going to tie this back into the Russia story, where the, the probe, the lander, is called Luna 25, because they want to show that we're continuing with Russia's space programme. But do you know what it was originally called before they renamed it to Luna 25? Putin's glorification journey. Craft. No, it was called Luna Glob. Right. G-L-O-B. Luna Glob. Which sounds like a sound a Yeti would make. The Yeti from Ski Free. Yeah. That's why it was trying to tie it back that way. Yes, that's. Um, I think it's good they've changed the name. I think so too. Luna Glob is a bad name. Yeah, I'm guessing some embassies in the English-speaking world went, that, that's a weird name. Yeah, exactly. If only they did the same with Walking Rover. It might sound incredibly romantic in uh, other languages. It, it might well do. It might well do. Yeah. Uh, so Luna 25 or Luna Glob, it's just a simple lander. It's not going to, it's not going to walk on the surface. It's just going to land there and it's armed with a couple of scientific uh, instruments measuring the stuff that they know already. So it'll be uh, lots of calibration stuff that we expect the soil to be like this. Let's measure it. Oh, yes, it is like that. Therefore, our scientific equipment works. And it's got a robotic arm for soil samples and potentially drilling hardware as well. This isn't a sample return mission. But, exciting news on that front, in just three months, China is launching Chang'e 5, which will be a sample return mission. Oh, cool. Yeah, so the Russians are getting to the moon just before the Americans land on it. The thing is, though, if that's a sort of glory thing, it's like if the Americans are building a massive skyscraper and you rush in and build a a little shed or something. It, it doesn't really embarrass the Americans. It just makes them look even better, quite frankly. You think? Well, yeah, it's just like, oh, you, oh you've, you've managed to land on the moon and take some samples of stuff that we already know and measure things we already... Well done, Russia. Well done. Oh, I tell you what, we could go and pick that up for you uh, with our actual manned moon mission. <laughs> you know? So I see this as as a bit of a uh, middle finger to them, but also a muscle flex. The fact that Russia can go, we're deciding to go to the moon and they can do it in a turnaround time of a year and they can go, hey, we're going to the moon. We're going to land something on it just to just to prove we can. And then if that works, we're going to send men there, which I imagine will be the next step. If they're if they're doing the lander, which is their bread and butter from the lunar missions in the 70s, if they manage to 
do this again, it'll only be a matter of months before they actually put men on the moon. And I say men, they're not going to put women on the moon. It's Russia. It's a very patriarchal society. There's a lot of problems there. Let's not go into it just yet. But I reckon this is a muscle flex from Putin to be like, hey, you want to get there in 2024? We'll get there before you. Yeah, no, I don't disagree. It's probably, you know, it's the Russian mentality to flex their muscles a bit. I just think it's a rubbish flexing of the muscles. It's like America, oh, you've got this new battleship coming out. Oh, well, we can quickly launch a speedboat. All right, <laughs> yes. Well done. We we were launching speedboats years ago. You know, it's, it's I don't know. It just seems like a, a bad tribute act. Okay, that's a that's a fair point, and that's that's a sort like yeah, that's your take on it, and I yeah, uh, I can't disagree with your take, but I think it's quite impressive that they managed to do this turnaround time, uh, and I think they probably will catch up with the Americans way quicker than the Americans will progress. Yeah, you can do that. You can do sort of fast engineering if you take risks and stuff. Do you reckon it'll work? Yeah, I think it will. I think they're it going will. for a soft landing. I take it. Yeah, they will, because they've got scientific equipment. They're not doing impactors like they used to. Okay, I reckon it won't work then. So uh, we'll we'll have a bet. Okay, I bet you uh, a night of drinks. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a cheap night for me. I think because <laughs> I usually have it. Ah, oh, yeah, so beer that'll do. I haven't I haven't drunk it. Although actually, no, it's gone up. Got alcohol consumption's gone up a bit since lockdown. I think that applies to everyone. Yeah. Well, you know that decanter collection I had? Where I said, oh. <laughs> it is no basi- more. Yeah, basically. For the audience, I, I ended up with some decanters uh, with no drinks in them. But I like decanters, so I start collecting decanters. And then I ended up with some drinks that I never drank. So I thought, oh, well, what I could do is put the drinks in the decanters. That's a good idea. And then gradually, I just started collecting decanters. Of which, incidentally, the best place to get them is the charity shop near where you live. Oh, yeah. I went into there and they said, we don't sell decanters in any of our other stores. And all the sort of branches of the charity shops send their decanters to the sort of Gloucester High Street shop, which is interesting because I went to all the charity shops in like Cheltenham and surrounding area and they didn't have decanters. So it's become this sort of decanter mecca or sort of (laughs) (laughs) haven that everyone sends their decanters there. And everyone knows to go there to buy decanters. This isn't so, this isn't a posh place. No, <laughs> well that's it. Uh, yeah, I mean they're not the the most sort of elaborate of decanters because we went to glass blowing place. Like there's a famous place where in Downing Devon. Ah, uh, mate, I have no idea. This kind of like that stuff bores me, so I don't know. <laughs> glass blowing? What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> No, we um we went to this place where the Queen gets her glass blown decanters <laughs> from, as it were. <laughs> and, that uh, sounds a lot ruder than it is. Yeah, <laughs> we and uh, we ended up buying like the factory seconds for sort of ten quid or whatever. Or <laughs> so it's just like when you go to the Capri shop and you had yeah. the like not dairy milks that were a bit scuffy, or the whispers that were not bubbly enough. They sell them at like a fraction of the price. You just got a bag of glass. <laughs> yeah, it's not broken. It's just. Like... <laughs> but yeah, and it wasn't a decanter. It was just like a tumbler, uh, and that was. I think it had a bubble in it somewhere because it it was one of those where this is slight. This is imperfect, and we were like picking it up, going, "I I can't see why it's not perfect. It's lovely." Well, you're not the queen, are you? Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. So um, uh, that yeah, anyway, that that place we we don't. They're not of that quality uh, in Gloucester. They are of sort of <laughs> dodgy plastic, but looks like glass or whatever. 
colour me shocked. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, where was this going? Oh, right, yeah. So I had that collection that I never drank. Basically, um, during lockdown, it's gradually whittled away. <laughs> Where I've gone through all the drinks I like, and then it's like, oh, oh, okay, I'll I'll get into uh, brandy. I've got brand. Oh, okay, I got through that like in a month or something, and then I'm I've eventually stopped on like dark rum. Oh, which is, rum is oh, the yeah. killer. Yeah, it's just like, oh yeah, no, I'll because um, I was drinking some crap as I went went through of just stuff I don't like. Yeah, and then it got to rum. I was just like, yeah, this is I'll, I'll just go sober, I'll just <laughs> eat, eat eat some soap or something. Oh, I've had enough creme de month to last me a lifetime. Yeah. To summarise, on that note of excessive drinking, Russia is going to the moon to try and find some resources via its continuing mission, not Lunar Glob, Lunar 25, in an extension of its lunar programme, but also as a nice little screw you to America. The headline for the Phobos Eclipse story was during the Phobos eclipse, NASA's InSight Mars rover captured some data that is quite inexplicable, quite quirky, quite weird. It's like, ooh, that's interesting. And as I was digging through this, what happened was there was a slight tilt in the rover during this eclipse. And a bit of my brain was like, that's incredible. They detected tidal forces, this tidal, this tidal bulge, as it was, um, from Phobos. So as Phobos orbits Mars, Mars is going to pull on Phobos, and it is. It's pulling Phobos towards the surface of Mars, and in the next 30 to 50 million years, it's going to crash into the surface. Likewise, though, Phobos is pulling on Mars. So during this eclipse, the rover was pointing up towards it, and it experienced this tilt. And I read this, it was like, this is amazing. It's detected this tiny tidal bulge. That's amazing. And the scientists thought this too, but they were wrong. And it wasn't a tidal bulge that they detected, which is frustrating because it would have been some nice con conclusive evidence that this tidal thing was happening. We know it's happening anyway, but it's nice to have like some numbers to back it up. Uh, but what they did find instead is equally as interesting and also a bit more scientifically relevant as well. So what happened was as Phobos went overhead, the, the Mars rover, as it did this eclipse, it caused the rover to tilt slightly. And when I say tilt, the description they use in the article, imagine a 5p coin. I don't, I don't have to, Andy, I've got one here. Ah, good. Okay, so imagine a small coin, the smallest coin possible. And this tilt is the equivalent of putting two silver atoms under one edge of the coin. Right, I'll try that now. <laughs> yeah, so, it doesn't tilt much. It doesn't, it doesn't. The actual measurable incline was 10 to the power of minus 8, which is 10, no, a hundred millionth of a metre. So it's practically negligible, but it was measurable. So there was this slight tilt. <laughs> that That is like the slightest of slight <laughs> tilts I've ever heard of. Like, you wouldn't even notice the bubble in the spirit measure going. It's, uh, it is minute at best. But this tilt was there, and they know that it wasn't from f the gravitational pull of Phobos. It's got gone overhead of this 
rover many times, just not in an eclipse format, so they'd have felt it in the data then, which they hadn't. They went back and they tried to find this tilt and it didn't happen then. It only happened during the eclipse. And what happened was in the 30 seconds that Phobos eclipsed Mars, which it does fairly often, but only in this precise area where the rover is sat. It eclipsed it for 30 seconds. And in that 30 seconds, the ground cooled and warped only slightly, but enough to tilt the rover. So from this exact little tilt, they are able to figure out the elasticity of the Martian surface. To quote the article, cold material is always more elastic than hot. So by this slight tilt, they're able to figure out how elastic the surface of Mars is and therefore what it is made of. Is it made of different components to Earth or the same components to Earth? Could this lead to plate tectonics? It's allowing to give a more precise measurement of the Martian surface and also they know exactly where the Martian rover is on Mars. So if they're able to precisely figure to the millisecond when Phobos is transiting overhead, they can calculate the Phobian orbit far more precisely than previous measurements would allow, giving one or more precise measurement of Phobos's orbit, which will allow them to calculate when Phobos will impact the Martian surface or exceed the Roche limit and break up in the sky, as well as if it does hit the Martian surface, what the Martian surface is made of. All this from a tiny tilt. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's amazing. I mean, if I stand on Earth and a cloud goes in front of the sun, I don't generally fall over. <laughs> no, no, you don't. So it's not that big a tilt. In fact, I don't ever notice that tilt. Like, yeah, as I say, this is probably the tiniest tilt I've ever heard of. I can't, I can't think of a time when any human being has ever tried to explain a smaller tilt to me. Uh, and, and the fantastic significance of it. Yes, this is tiltification to the, to the extreme. <laughs> it reminds me of my days uh, in the arcades as a kid when you used to kick it pinball machine ah. they used to shout tilt at you if nasa scientists that's it if nasa scientists were like in charge of making pinball machines and they're going to tilt every time it slightly gets a bit colder you're you're not going to play pinball no no you're not because when it tilts it just shuts off the machine it says that's it you're not getting your ball back you've lost your money i got banned from two arcades from uh smacking the penny machines to try and get the extra pennies out <laughs> That, I mean, that's bad, but you're a young, young man. This is what it was like, 12, so... Yeah, well, that's it, you're in, in your prime. To beat that, <laughs> to, to beat that, the, uh, the family anecdote in our house is my mum and her mum got kicked out of an arcade for doing the same thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. Hey, and, it's a tried and tested method. Uh, but this was in front of the kids as well. Oh no, bad influence. And and, uh, and the th I think uh, my dad, being my dad, just didn't leave the arcade. He carried on playing with the kids. Ah. Um, this was with my older brother and sister. So uh, before I was born, obviously. Yes, yeah, so imagine two older ladies um, getting kicked out of an arcade while their kids merrily play on with the moral high ground entirely underneath them. <laughs> I'm just picturing these like massive bouncers escorting some very <laughs> sweet old ladies out, but I don't think that was the case. Uh, so I was trying to think of a colloquial analogy for how to 
explain this deformation of the of the surface, how it deformed and formed the tilt. And the best way I can think about it is um, when puddles dry. So if you have a puddle in like uh, like just normal soil and mud, and you look down and it's like quite smooth on the bottom. But once the puddle evaporates, the ground will become a bit wavy. As the puddle evaporates, it'll sort of seep down. But also the ground will dry and it will cause these like little ridges and cracks and whatnot. And that is due to the temperature changing and the ground like solidifying and cracking and basically changing with the temperature. Because when it was underwater, it was fine. But when there was no water there, there's no heat conductor. So the ground changes based on the temperature that's the best way i can describe it i can't think of anything better so uh... to summarize when phobos causes an eclipse on the martian surface which happens fairly regularly uh, it causes the most minute of ground disturbances which will cause robots to slightly tilt so continuing with the foreign moon news i.e news about moons that don't belong to Earth. I have some foreign moon news regarding Jupiter. Ooh. Ooh, indeed. And I would argue this is probably one of the biggest stories that we'll cover on uh, Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show. Jupiter could have 600 moons. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> yes. Wow. So, uh, yeah, you've kept it as a surprise. I haven't... That is a surprise. Uh, so my initial reaction is... Um, oh, and the next moon is feature is going to go on a bit. <laughs> uh, yes, it is. Now, I should point out, it's Jupiter could have 600 moons. So an initial study, which was looking at a tiny bit of the Jovian sky, uncovered 52 objects that could be moons, seven of which were already known moons of Jupiter, one of their outer irregular satellites. 45, however, could be new moons. Now I say could be, they probably are moons, but they need to confirm their orbit, which is looking at them again in a couple of months. So what they've done is they've found these moons, measured the trajectory they're on, the orbital data. So based on the path it's on, you come back in a couple of months look at where the moon should be, and if a moon is there, based on all sorts of gravitational effects, the moon should be there. If it's there, brilliant, it's a moon. If not, it was probably a rogue asteroid or just some other bit of debris that was zooming past Jupiter and isn't actually a moon. So, they found 45 potential new moons that are roughly 800 meters across, so less than a kilometer in diameter, which is smaller than anything that's ever been found so far. Yeah, is this the bit where you say they're not actually moons, they're going to be moonlets or something like that? Because there's like, uh, what is it, Pluto's not a planet, it's a small thingy planetlet or something. Pluto is a dwarf planet. That's it, it's where astronomers kind of say there's too many of those things Let's start a new category for the less big ones. Yeah, that's a fair point. So my definition of a moonlet is a moon in the making, which is in a video I made called What is a Moonlet? And I would argue a moonlet is a moon that is, for example, caught within the rings of Saturn. You can clearly see a moon in the making. It's got a gravitational pull to clear the path in front and behind it, but not enough to actually clear the ring. 
whereas the tiny moon of Daphnis does. It has a distinct path that's very clear of debris. So that is a moon, whereas, for example, Earhart is a moonlet. It clears a little bit of space in front and behind it, but it doesn't. It's called Earhart because the gap in front and behind the moon makes it look like a propeller. So they've named them after aviators. And there's one called Dumont as well, after the French aviator, which I think is a really delightful little name. But anyway, they found 52 moons, seven of which they knew already. So 45 potential new moons, not confirmed, still up for debate, but probably moons, by looking at a tiny little bit of the Jovian sky. And they are extracting outwards to the whole of the Jovian sky. And they're saying 600 moons could live here. Right, okay, so it's a statistical discovery for the... It is, it is. It's kind of the equivalent of if I've got a lake and I put a big net in that gets something, uh, so how many fish have I caught, how big was the net, let's multiply it. Now, it could be that there's no other fish in the lake and all the fish just happen to be gathered for a little fish party when I put the net in, but they're, they're kind of saying, no, no, on average there is this many new moons. Yes, but in your analogy, fish have free will to gather wherever they want in the lake, whereas the moons are kind of bound to the gravitational force of the parent planet they orbit, which in this case is Jupiter, and they don't have as much free will as the little fishies that are known to cluster in schools. Uh, Okay, well, I suppose Jupiter just has 42 new moons, and that's it. And they just all happen to be in the (laughs) exact same spot. So... What are the chances there? Yeah, well, well, I was just working that out. (laughs) Uh, What's the coefficient for the creation of the universe? Uh, Three? Three, I think, yeah, something like that. Okay, so it's a statistical discovery. Yes. That's cool. I could do that. Well, could you? I reckon somewhere in the universe there's a moon we haven't discovered. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I am being very, very sarcastic. They have done more work than I have. They found 42 moons, which is pretty impressive. Sorry, my uh, other reaction is, is there going to be now a naming contest? Because I know you like them. Well, this actually leads to the next point of the article where they actually spoke to Scott Shepard. Well, you'd have to, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, exactly. Notorious moon spotter Scott Shepard. So, now, he he predicted (laughs) Jupiter probably has like 100 to 150 moons that are above a kilometre in diameter. Did Scott Shepard say, oh, I've already seen them, I just didn't bother writing them down? (laughs) Um, I think he did. Did he? Yeah. In our paper, we also mentioned detections that we could not confirm as moons because we didn't observe them for the months and years required to reliably (laughs) determine their orbits. (laughs) So I think you might be right. Uh, And the reason I laugh is because I know that you would absolutely love to discover a moon, Andy. I would, yeah. I think that would be quite spectacular. Whereas Scott Shepard is just, oh, yeah, moon, yeah, whatever. I wish I could just do some photocopying or something. (laughs) I'll just go and sneak off and use a photocopier. And he quickly looks up to the sky. Oh, I've spotted another bloody moon. (laughs) Well, he might lose the title of Most Moons Discovered to Brett Gladman, who was part of the Canadian team that made this discovery. Although they didn't discover 600, they only discovered 45, uh, and they're yet to be confirmed. But when they spoke to Scott Shepard, the reason why they spoke to him is he's a notorious moon spotter, but also the Canadian team used a similar technique to how... Scott Shepard and his team discovered the 20 satellites for Saturn last year, the one that I made the video about. Now, when you said, is there going to be a naming contest? The International Astronomical Union, 
the IAU, do not name moons that are smaller than one kilometer. Uh, when I say that, they don't name planetary moons that are smaller than one kilometer. So if there's like an asteroid, like Diddy Moon became Didymus, which we talked about in the last episode, that is significantly smaller than a kilometer, but that doesn't belong to a planet, that belongs to an asteroid. Whereas in this case, planetary moons smaller than one kilometer in size don't get a name. So that means we're going to have a potentially 500 to 600 moons orbiting Jupiter that don't have a name. And the frustrating thing is, Zeus has definitely got at least a thousand lovers and or descendants, because if you had a pulse in ancient Greece, you were a lover of Zeus, whether you liked it or not. Uh, so yeah, that IAU rule, uh, we don't name anything below a kilometre, you know, it's, yeah. it's beneath us. We are, <laughs> quite frankly, you know, you can name it yourself. We we don't need the hassle. Are there moons already that are less than a kilometre that they haven't named? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, well, it's a case of there's lots of moons that don't have a name yet. That's what the naming contest for, for the five names of Jupiter, five moon names of Jupiter, the one that I was involved in. But there were 20 that were up for grabs. And I think some of those might be smaller than a kilometre. I need to go and have a look. In fact, let me do that now. Because while while you're doing that, I was thinking, okay, what... Because they name it in groups. So I was thinking, what group has sort of 42 objects in it? Because... <laughs> well, the Norse group has many members in it, at least 30. So the smallest moon of Jupiter discovered is S2003J12, which has a diameter of a kilometre, but that is currently considered lost. It hasn't been found yet, so it was discovered, but follow-up observations couldn't find it, so it might not be a moon. And it might be a bit scared and hungry, because uh, it's lost. Um, NASA are going around putting up posters on lampposts. Have you seen oh, this? Oh, bloody hell. Have you found it? No, I've just found actual footage of kale, <laughs> which has been uploaded in the last few few weeks after I did the video about kale. Carlo? Yeah, cut off. Lip. <laughs> God, I made the whole video about it. <laughs> yes, Carlo. Keep calling it kale and you might actually change the world. Oh, Otherwise, really? yeah. I'm really annoyed about that. So what's happened, sorry? So when I was making the video, there wasn't any images of it, and I looked in, like, lots of observatory footage and couldn't find it, but someone has actually processed images of kale. So you can actually see Kale. Kale. You can see Kale now. Okay. Oh, I, I think everything's pointing to you have to redo that video. No. But, but just, no, it's do it, done. just do it on a bit of A4 paper. <laughs> I was thinking about this the other day of like some of these smaller moons where there isn't a lot to say I think it might just turn into like a moon in 60 seconds here's the name here's this here's that do it in 60 seconds but spend some time be like why is this important well it meant this technique could be used or something like that yeah that sounds good um so quick one so when you say the IAU don't name them yeah do you mean they don't give them non s123 type names no they give that those denominations are always going to be there you need that code because it in indicates when it was discovered and the order in which they were discovered that year yeah. so that one's a useful code to have i'm talking about calling it i don't know fred yeah calling it fred or tim or whatever that s123 type name they will always give an, a number yeah, a denomination to it. Yeah, is it them that get the IAU that give those numbers? I think so. I think it's them. So S for satellite, 
2003 being the year it was discovered, J12, J for Jupiter, 12 being it was the 12th moon discovered that year. Okay, so let's suppose I've got a photo and it's got 42 new moons on it. Yep. And I go, wow, there's 42 new moons in the same photo. How do I know which one's discovered first? Well, you're not going to be able to process them all by looking at that one image. It's in blocks. Okay. So I'd be like, all right, I imagine you split it up amongst the team because these images are a gigabyte each. But hypothetically? Oh, hypothetically, I don't know, mate. If they all happen to be on the same photo plate, is there like a J12 upper left most? You might have J12 A, B, C. <laughs> cool. I honestly don't know. I don't think that's come up. You should write to the IAU and just make sure they've thought of it. I will. I will inquire. Cool. So in that same article, they've said, okay, so you found lots of tiny moons. Surely you're going to have to have a cutoff because 800 metres, 600 moons, you're going to go down to ring particle size and ring particles do count as a moon because it orbits a parent planet. But Scott Shepard doesn't believe we need any more definition of what is a moon. I beg to differ. I think we do. Oh, you're, you're picking a tough enemy there, Andy. I would like to think of this as peer reviewing. You're not a peer of Scott Shepard. Only Brett Watts' face comes close. Gladman. Gladman, yeah. See, I've even forgotten his name. That's how insignificant he is compared to the almighty <laughs> Scott Shepard. It's only because I said Scott Shepard over and over again to you. Incidentally, that's another trip to the pub. Just an hour of Andy saying Scott Shepard over and over again. <laughs> I do talk about other things. But not as much as Brett Gladman. You know, it's just, you've never mentioned him. Uh, Joe, I might have been passing, but not, not to the same extent as Mr. Shepard. Either way, I disagree <laughs> with Scott Shepard. I think there should be a cutoff for a moon. And I think not giving it a name might be a good indicator. If it's less than a kilometre, then, and it orbits a planet, then it's not a moon. That might, that might have to be the cutoff. If there's 600 of them. But that's kind of arbitrary. Yeah. Just a kilometre, yeah. Like it's if, like walking 10,000 steps a day. That was plucked out of the air. Yeah. But as in, let's suppose there's a moon that's 999 metres, and then I go and build a, a tower on it, like, just to give it extra two, three metres. Mm. Does it become a moon? Uh, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> and then I knock the tower down. As soon as the IAU have approved it and given it a name, I say, bang, there goes my tower. You have to unname that moon now. Oh, why do you have to be such a maverick in this in these yeah. situations? I don't know, is the answer. And, they, they, and this is probably why there, it's people like you as to why everything is now a moon. Yeah, well, that's, that's, the, that's the other extreme. You moon enabler, Rick. You moon enabler. I want you to name every rock going round Saturn. Uh, so, to summarise, Jupiter could have 600 moons, at least 800 metres in diameter most of which won't get a name because they're less than a kilometre in diameter. 45 of these moons probably exist, but they need to be confirmed in a few months. So stick around because Jupiter could claim back its crown of Moon King with 124 moons. What's the next headline, Andy? Verbatim, because usually I editorialize them a bit and say like oh, okay well like that rusty moon one before was uh the moon is getting rusty and it's all our fault it's like okay i'll tidy that up a bit but this headline verbatim is 
petrol-drinking aliens could be living on moons of Saturn, scientists believe. That sounds legit. Well, yes. Uh, this is according to Wales Online. Well... <laughs> the top five headlines on this page are Asian Hornet spotted in the UK for the first time, Apple to announce latest iPhone versions and other tech gear at London event on Wales Online. Huge asteroid travelling at 23,000 miles per hour passes by Earth next week. UK hit by 3.8 magnitude earthquake and how alpacas and llamas could stop coronavirus infecting humans. This is all clearly relevant to Wales. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, if you've never been to Wales, that's basically what what they talk about in the pubs and the valleys all the time. Yes, having grown up, well, born and raised in Wales, although right on the border, so practically English. Uh, yes, this is exactly what we talk about all the time. So, uh, is it true there are petrol drinking aliens on on Saturn or the moons of Saturn? Right. So. Petrol drinking, in the loosest of terms, yes. But my beef with this is obviously the clickbaity title, but it's the fact living on moons of Saturn, nope, it can only be one moon, and that is Titan, because the petrol drinking aliens could live on Titan because of the excessive amounts of methane and ethane that are on Titan. No other moon of Saturn just titan so moon not moons and petrol drinking they're just expanding the term petrol from anything ain like butane kerosene i think falls under petrol so ethane and methane are technically a type of petrol hence petrol drinking aliens and they don't drink it they would metabolize it they would take in part of the molecule, break it down, or probably a bigger hydrocarbon and actually eject methane into the atmosphere because that was one of the theories for why Titan has a lot of methane and ethane in its atmosphere and environment and also why it has lakes of methane and potentially ethane is that you have these microbes, these bacteria, alien life that are breaking down the hydrocarbons, larger chains, and excreting, belching out, I say belching, they don't have lungs, basically the same way that we take in oxygen and give out carbon dioxide, they would take in things from the titanium atmosphere and breathe out hydrocarbons and breathe out methane. That's one theory for where the methane came from. One of many. Other people think that it's from cryovolcanoes. Other people think it's from a, a, a leftover from some uh, greenhouse effect runaway greenhouse effect it's called there's all sorts of theories they aren't as clickbaity as petrol drinking aliens are <laughs> so you're saying it's a lie i'm not saying it's a lie i'm saying it's distorting the truth the same way metal bands distort their guitars they just turn it all the way up to 11 and go that'll do okay but alpacas can cure coronavirus <laughs> apparently so yeah they're the ones doing all the testing so uh this is kind of like a bumper episode because i didn't put out a podcast in august due to the fact that life has got in the way even though we're all still in lockdown and working from home uh i've had a lot on as have you with your training so that's why we didn't i tried to put out a podcast episode a month but missed the deadline for this and i'm trying not to get stressed out about this kind of thing so i just thought Put it back by two weeks. Hopefully 
the listeners won't mind. And if you do mind, I'm sorry. We're just adding to your list of problems with coronavirus and Brexit and all sorts. So Absolutely. Late podcasts is up there as the most heinous of crimes. But full moon of the month covering this time sec- September and October. So we've missed the full moon of September, which was on the 2nd. And it was known as the corn moon, which has featured a lot in the last few full moon names and other names include wine moon harpoon moon barley moon harvest moon all things to do with kind of like well harvest just collecting crops but the two that are not allowed are singing moon and song moon Uh, none of that not allowed uh, is that because it's been banned now in primary schools well singing is banned everywhere so while you can have social gatherings like i don't know a pub quiz, for example, you can't have live music because there's no shouting or singing at a pub quiz whatsoever. It's like exam <laughs> conditions. Perfectly silent. We all know this. Whereas live music, oh, that's that's where people yeah. are belting that's it out. Good. Even the sort like... of, you know, sombre violinist playing some requiem or something. Everyone's <laughs> shouting, starting up a mosh pit. You know what it's like. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was the September full moon. For October which is on the 1st of October, which will lead into a blue moon, but we'll talk about the blue moon the next podcast we record in October, uh, because there'll be a bit more to talk about then. So the October full moon, which is on the 1st of October, is the Hunter's Moon, also known as Traveller's Moon, Blackberry Moon, Ice Moon, Blood Moon, Seedfall Moon, and Dying Grass Moon, which to me just all indicate, well, you had your chance... (laughs) <laughs> to pick up your crops, to do your harvest. Now, it's blood moon, your seeds have fallen, and your grass is dead. Yeah, if you haven't done it by now, you're too too late, moon. You're screwed. Yeah. <laughs> you had your chance, moon. Like, we've named all the other moons about jobs you should be doing. And if you haven't done it by now, you're an idiot, <laughs> moon. So... In tradition with the Suan tribes, so it started like with, with the hangover analogy of hard time, long day, sore eye is the actual waking up, oh God, why? Then the cures come with frog moon, idle moon, full leaf, so sitting still and eating remedies. Then you're going off on your walk, red berries, black cherries. For September, it is the yellow leaf moon. I'm going to be a bit crass here, and this is when... You're out on your walk, and that's when all the fluids hit, and you're like, "Oh God, I need the loo," but I'm miles away from the nearest pub. I know, I'll just, I'll just go in nature. Hence, yellow leaf, and the one for October, which is a fantastic name for a moon, and I, I, I think this is my favourite name for the October moon. Yeah, I must say, I'm, I'm reading the show notes. This is the best moon name I've come across. The Gopher looks back moon. That's that's an album title. That's not that's not a name of a moon. That is an album title. Absolutely. The Gopher Looks Back Moon. And this is also reflecting on the night before. <laughs> going yeah. through going through the emails of like, oh god, what did I drink order? Looking through the texts of oh no, who did I who did I talk to? The Gopher Looks Back Moon. Well, it's like the uh have you seen the hangover? And it's like, oh, there's a lion. How the hell did we get a lion? So we've got a gopher. Oh, gopher, tell look back and tell us how we got you. But yes, gopher looks back moon is probably the best one we've come across so far. And so 
we end the show with the ongoing feature of And The Next Moon Is, working our way through all the moons of the solar system. We're on the moons of Jupiter, starting with the innermost moons of the likes of Metis and Thebe, and working our way out. And we've done the inner moons, we're on the Galilean moons now, and we come to Ganymede, the Mac Daddy of moons. It is the largest moon in the solar system, the ninth largest object in the solar system. It's bigger than Mercury, Pluto, Ceres, Eris, loads of dwarf planets, including an actual honest-to-god planet of Mercury. So Ganymede is the Mac Daddy of moons. Cool. <laughs> you could sound a bit more enthusiastic. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm just bringing up a picture of Ganymede. Yeah, the photos of Ganymede, which are taken by uh, Voyager, Galileo, Juno, they are stunning. Like, its surface makes it look like one of those fake moons or fake planets from the likes of Star Trek or Star Wars or Altered Carbon. It looks stunning. Uh, just this gorgeous surface, which is a mixture of ancient terrain and new molten overspill, icy molten overspill. So what will happen is there'll be a big impact on the surface or there'll be some tectonic activity because it is fully differentiated and the surface will crack and ice will leak out and it'll overwrite the old surface, which is covered in craters, which is why you have these like perfect straight lines going across it and these like these speckles from craters hitting fresh ice. It's a, a spectacle to look at. Yeah, no, that's... Sorry, the silence is me just looking at uh, this. Yeah, I'm just wondering, can I get, like, a, a, a picture printed and I'll just put it on the walls? So I might just Google that. What, of <laughs> Ganymede? Ganymede lounge photo or something, yeah. <laughs> there, there will be some gorgeous images of it. Uh, so Ganymede, one of the Galilean moons, was discovered in 1610, one of the first non-terrestrial moons ever discovered, along with probably Io, Callisto and the other Galilean moons. It orbits Jupiter once every seven days with an average speed of 10 to 11 kilometers per second. Its average surface temperature is 110 Kelvin, so minus 136 degrees Celsius. One of the more interesting things about Ganymede is that it actually has a very faint atmosphere. Uh, like on Earth, the atmospheric pressure of one bar equates to 101,000 pascals. <laughs> on Ganymede, it has an atmosphere of mostly oxygen, but it measures between 0.2 and 1.2 micropascals. So, <laughs> uh, so doing some rough maths, that's probably about 100 billion times lighter, less dense than our current atmosphere. So yeah, it's, it's, it has an oxygen atmosphere, but it's incredibly thin. Uh, some other interesting things about Ganymede is that it actually has its own magnetic field, which we talked about in the last episode. The fact that the magnetic field was funneling the charged particles up to its poles. Uh, if you remember, we talked about the Juno photos taken a bit. Yeah, but you can't stand on the poles, stick your arms in the air and go, I am the lightning god. No, you can't. But do you know what you can see? Um, space. The northern lights. Oh, cool. You could see Aurora because it has a magnetic field. And here's something amazing. They observed the Aurora on Ganymede very, very faintly. I don't think it's visual, but I think they did it via infrared. They were able to look at the charged particles of the Aurora above Ganymede. And from the movement of this Aurora, they confirmed undeniably 
that Ganymede has a subsurface ocean. Wow. Is that like everywhere or in places? The whole of Ganymede <laughs> has a subsurface ocean. Wow. And it has more water than all the water on Earth combined. Excellent. That would be a good water park. <laughs> no, it wouldn't because it's subsurface. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dive in, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the um the, the Simpsons episode? The answer's yes, because you, you you've seen them all. Uh, but you know when Homer gets a bowling ball that has a liquid centre? Yes. So uh, it sounds like that. So uh, Ganymede has a liquid centre. Well, not a liquid centre. It has... Ah. So uh, think of it as layers. So you've got a molten core, a molten metallic core, and then a silicate like case around it made of rock. Then your subsurface ocean, then a layer of ice and rock above it. It's a bit like a, a magic eight ball, but instead of the triangle thing in the, in the, in the centre, <laughs> it's like a perfect sphere. Oh, of death. Uh, yeah, because yeah, it's molten lava and whatnot. Yeah, you try, you can sh- shake Ganymede and ask a question. <laughs> Do you have life? Maybe. We'll find out. All signs point to no. Uh, actually, no. Signs point to yes, because it has... A magnetic field, it has uh, conduction, it'll have a molten core which will allow heat to go into the subsurface ocean, which will mean that, and it is a saline ocean, so it's salty, so that means that it has all the properties required for life, it's just whether life exists there or not. Because life exists at the bottom of Earth's oceans, right next to the volcanic vents and whatnot, hmm. so this life could exist on Ganymede, just need to get there. Yeah, are they going there? Yeah, they're going to visit it via the Europa Clipper. So the Europa Clipper, title in the name, it's going to go to Europa, but it <laughs> might also visit Ganymede as well. I'm not sure if that's in the... Might clip it. Uh, well, maybe. I don't know. I need to do more research in the into the actual mission plan. But there are going to be missions to Ganymede. And Ganymede also featured in the moon news that I was going to mention before, and it was just a lovely coincidence that the moon that featured in this episode of the podcast also happened to feature in the news, so I thought I'd combine the two. And Ganymede might be home to the largest impact crater in the solar system. Ooh. So the one that holds the title at the moment is on Callisto, and that's called Valhalla. All right, can you see this image that I have sent you? Oh, yes. Okay, that crater is on the North Pole of Callisto. Callisto is about the size of Mercury. And can you see how big that crater is? All those shockwaves going out from it. Oh, the whole thing is a crater. Right, yes. Yeah, those like shockwaves going out. That's massive. Yeah, it's massive. And it's about 1,800 kilometers across. Now, the crater that has been detected on Ganymede covers potentially... 7,800 kilometres. (laughs) So that is bigger than the diameter of Ganymede. The fact that it goes around the actual top half of the moon and around the bottom of it. Like, like think of a Christmas pudding where the top two thirds is icing. That's the crater that has gone around Ganymede. And in a similar way to Valhalla, where you have like this initial splodge and then shock waves going out, they've discovered these parallel lines across the surface of Ganymede. And it's theorized that those parallel lines are in fact shock waves from this colossal crater that impacted Ganymede way, way back in time. And uh, doing reverse engineering as they do, they theorized that this impact came from an asteroid that was 150 kilometers across 
traveling 10 kilometers per second. The speed that Ganymede goes around Jupiter at the moment. That's pretty impressive, yeah. You wouldn't want to be under that. Uh, no, no, you wouldn't. Oh, you I was wrong. It wasn't the Europa Clipper. It's uh, Juice. The mission is called Juice. Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer. Oh, that was That's it. the name of the mission, not uh, Europa Clipper. So I was wrong about that. Sorry about that. Yeah, we covered that last year, didn't we? And it was the very bad acronym. Uh, yes, yes, well remembered. But yes, that is some wonderful moon news that ties into Ganymede, the largest moon of the solar system that might well have the largest crater on it. And also, maybe life. We don't know. We'll find out when we get closer and are able to do studies beneath the surface. So do you have any questions about Ganymede? No. Okay, I've got a question for you though. Yeah. What are you going to call this moon? Because every other moon has had a nickname so far. Oh, this is the <laughs> the biggest moon. <laughs> the big moon. Okay. The big moon. Yeah. Doesn't Doctor Who come from Ganymede? Gallifrey. Ah, okay. But but you know, that that was a solid Near enough. Yeah, that, that's good memory. That's good memory. Yeah, Gallifrey planet or Gallifrey system, but I think he comes from Gallifrey. So one second while I get up the list of the moons of Jupiter. We we I remember your nicknames for the inner moons of Jupiter, but what is the nickname for Io? Uh, Io is the accordion moon that is a volcano. Yes. Type. I don't know my specific name, the, the hot, hot <laughs> moon that will kill you. Uh, yeah, that too. Uh, what about Europa? Uh, that was the uh, dynamic icy moon. Nice. Di- I like that dynamic icy moon. And Ganymede is big moon because <laughs> it's because it's big. Big it's the dot one. dot dot moon. Yeah. <laughs> All in capitals. I'm okay with that. All right. So unless you've got any other questions about Ganymede, that's the show. Uh, no, no, I've I've Ganymeded out. Fantastic. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Um, tune in next time where we'll be where we will be talking about the final Galilean moon of Callisto and any other moon news that comes up. Please get in contact with the show uh, via Twitter or email me or leave a comment on this YouTube video. All the handles are I am a lunatic. I am a lunatic. I'll obviously put links to it in the show notes and also on the YouTube screen now. Thank you very much for listening and catch you next time. You can say bye now, Rick. Oh, right, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Honest Andy's Discount Moon Show! Quick one, if you scroll down as well on my Wales Online thing, it says the new 17 number plates have been banned by the DVLA because they were too rude. (laughs) It's not moon related. It's just a list of rude words you can spell with 70. The only one that I can see here is, oh, wait, no, I got down to the Fs and that's where they all are. Never mind. (laughs)